Welcome to the Ord Minute Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to the Ord Minute Podcast. This is where we make sense of the market. My name is Nick Burgess and today we're talking to one of Australia's leading fund managers with a preview of the upcoming reporting season for the mid and small cap sector in what we're calling a lockdown special. So we all are, or most of us are in lockdown around the country. So why not talk about the key themes and stock picks ahead of reporting season? So to our guest from Wilson Asset Management, I'm delighted to welcome Oscar Oberg, Lead Portfolio Manager, and Tobias Yao, Portfolio Manager. So gents, welcome to this lockdown special edition of the Ord Minute Podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. So you guys are the portfolio managers for WAM's mid and small cap focused listed investment companies. So WAM Capital, Microcap, uh, WAM Research, WAM Active. So obviously the Ord Minute and Bailey Networks have large holdings in your listed investment companies. So we're interested in how you're positioning things as we head into this important reporting season. So that's what we're talking about today, key themes and then key stocks. Um, but let's start briefly with the market overall. Um, we're at you know above pre-COVID uh, levels for the equity market. There's obviously lots of stimulus around the world. There are, there are stutters of reopening depending on where you are. There's lockdowns on and off, unfortunately. How are you feeling, um, Oscar, about the macro backdrop at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I appreciate your time. Um, yeah, look, we're still very positive on the market. We've been saying that for, for some time, and in particular the small-cap industrial companies that we do look at across the ASX. You know, we've seen the Australian economy do incredibly well over the last 12 months, but we're also seeing this now in Europe and, and the United States as borders reopen and uh, people get out of lockdowns and we're starting to see, you know, increased consumer spending uh, quite universally across uh, both regions. I think... Um, the major question for investors over the last, say, six months has been around inflation yep. um, and in terms of whether the, the Fed over in the US uh, will need to, to hike aggressively. Now, our view is, is that inflation will occur. I mean, when we, you know, Tobias and I and, and the team at Wilson Asset Management catch up with many, many companies, you know, every week, and I guess there is inflation everywhere, you can't deny it, but we do think that it is under control, and 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 we, we do. You can have a look at the recent um, CPI print in the United States in June. Um, look, it was a big beat, but the majority of the beat was actually largely due to airlines used in new cars and hotels, and the, these, of course, were sectors that were really comping a very poor period last year, the worst of COVID. So, if you actually had had a look at the makeup of the CPI. Um, most of the cons- constituents were actually sort of show- only showed minor inflation. So, look, we think this is a very positive outcome uh, for the market. And in, in relation to COVID, I-, I guess, look, you know, it's-, it's-, it's no good given what we're seeing in Australia at the moment. Um, I guess the best thing that we can do is look to what happened last year. And if things do get worse, the government, you know, is in a very good position in terms of the budget. And, you know, there has the ability to increase spending. And, you know, if we were to see you know, a JobKeeper-style program again, it would be very, very positive for, you know, a number of sectors and and we believe the market as well. So, look, we're, we're very positive on the market. Um, our cash levels are low and uh, very positive on the opportunities that we see in front of us. Yeah, okay. Cash levels are low. So, clearly, that's a, a, a positive endorsement for the outlook. So, 
you guys have nominated a few a few sector themes that we're going to discuss in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, um, Oscar, how about, as per usual, remind us of what you like in stocks, what's your process and, and what you like to see in the companies you invest in? Yeah, so across the – well, the, the process that we run at Wilson Asset Management is universal across all the funds. Um, but, you know, looking at you – know, speaking about WAM Capital, WAM Research, WAM Active and WAM Microcap, the, the investment process that we look at, we, we want to see – a company whose um, the, the estimated growth rate of the company in terms of earnings per share is higher than the valuation of the company. We want a very strong uh, management team and we also uh, want a very strong sector that this the particular company is in. But mo- most importantly, we need to see a catalyst. And if we don't see a catalyst, then we won't invest, you know, invest in the company. So a catalyst could be uh, an earnings upgrades. It could be an earnings creative acquisition. It could be a divestment. Or, or so forth. So we run this uh, consistent investment process across all our funds, um, and have been doing uh, been doing so for some time. Okay, excellent. So some sector themes that you guys have nominated, and we're going to talk about some stocks within these. But these are tourism and leisure, mining services, retail, and then related to that, some technology um, and e-commerce. So as I mentioned, we'll talk about a few stocks in each of those areas. There's a lot to get through. So let's uh, let's jump to it, gents. So. Tourism and leisure, really interesting sector. This one, you know, clearly on a, a global basis, there are areas that are reopening and rebounding. There are areas that are, are sort of stuttering and not quite getting there. And then I guess there are other areas where, you know, such thing as international travel is is a long way off. Um, but, you know, how do we, how do you guys frame this sector overall? And, and I guess the starting point is we're, we're talking about discretionary spending and how people direct that. Yeah, I think the, the tourism sector is fascinating at the moment. And you probably think, the listeners probably think we're mad to be investing in it given we're in the middle of a lockdown in Australia and certainly the cases globally are increasing. However, we, we do have a vaccine. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the rhetoric from the leaders, not only in Australia and globally, is, is that we will return to normal um, imminently once we get to um, a certain percentage of the population vaccinated. But if we have a look at travel, I think what we've seen in the retail sector shows what will happen in the tourism sector once we go back to normal. I think over the last 12 to 18 months, we've had record levels of retail spending. And this is largely due to the fact there's $65 billion, if we look at Australia, there's $65 billion that Australians used to spend on international travel every year. And that's gone back into the retail sector. So our view on the retail sector is that we're at peak level of earnings and that when borders reopen and lockdowns finish and we can travel again, this weight of money will come back into the tourism sector. And in fact, it could actually come back more than what it was uh, on a pre-COVID basis. So look, while things are tough at the moment, um, there are opportunities. And if I look at one, which um, actually had an announcement uh, today, which was Event Entertainment, you know, Event has around $2 billion of, of property. And they've just uh, effectively announced that a number of their properties, they've just sold at a 60% premium to their previous uh, market value. Now, if we were to apply that to their whole property portfolio, which is a crude metric, but let's just do it anyway, um, we'd probably get a share price closer to $20 a share, which compares to the $12 a share um, that event is currently trading on. So this is just an example of the opportunities that we see because this is a beaten up sector. Now, going to international travel. Now, Webjet and corporate travel, um, we've owned for some time, but we've actually added to our holdings going into the August reporting season. Now, both of these companies are impacted by a lack of international travel. But where, where we see it interesting for both these companies is they have a very strong exposure to the United States and Europe, respectively. I think corporate travel is around 50% of the revenue and, and Webjet is about 40%. Now, once we get into the August results, we're going to get the first indication of what 
post-COVID spending in the tourism sector will be, given that the United States and Europe have opened up over the last few months. So we think the market will focus on this. And both these companies do have a short interest. So we do think that should these companies come through, point to the, 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 you know, uh, the US and Europe being very strong regions for them and actually getting to the, the levels of margins perhaps higher than what they were pre-COVID, we think this would be very positive for both stocks. And we think the market will look through weakness in Australia and, and where these businesses will be in two or three years' time. Hey, so just a couple of questions on those two stocks. So corporate travel, global travel agent, um, good exposure to the US that you mentioned. Uh, it's a business that's done a number of acquisitions over the last sort of five plus years quite successfully. Where does the COVID situation put their acquisition strategy in your view? I think there's when they raised money uh, to buy TNT back in September last year, they did raise a little bit extra money. And I think, so that we think they are looking at acquisitions, that they are a very acquisitive company. But I think the most importantly, important thing with corporate travel, there was a lot of you know, debate for a number of years around the acquisition strategy and you know, a lot of the accounting related to it. And I think if you looked at all the travel names, corporate travel was probably the most resilient uh, through the downturn um, more so than the others. So I think that puts that debate to bed a little bit as we move forward. So, yeah, and it's been interesting through this period, like corporate travel um, as a segment of the tourism sector has actually has been more resilient, which has been a surprise. So, look, I think Jamie, the CEO, if he finds the appropriate acquisition at the right price, he, he will definitely be interested given the balance sheet looks good. Okay. And Webjet, obviously, um, as you mentioned, uh, sort of 40-ish percent exposure to, um, to offshore so, so most people know the, the Webjet brand and the, the, the portal, the, the online travel business in Australia, but the uh, mainly European business is more of a B2B business called Webbed. So just explain what that is and, and how that's leveraged to the, the reopening uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, why, don't, why don't I pass it over to Tobias, given he's the expert on this one? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Okay, so the Webbed business is uh, pretty simple. So Webjet goes out and they negotiate rates with uh, different hotels and motels and accommodations around the world. They aggregate uh, all of those uh, hotels and they sell it to uh, online travel agents. They sell it to tour operators. Um, and they make a margin by being the middle person and by connecting, obviously, the hotels with customers around the world. And I think that's um, the strength of that business model. Um, and the way they're leveraged to the recovery is that when more people travel and the more people stay in hotels, they effectively take a clip from the increase in, in transactions. Yeah, so different to the uh, to the online portal, but leveraged to the recovery uh, nonetheless uh, across the uh, across across the Webjet business. And um, and Tobias Ardent Leisure is another one that you guys have nominated. So you know, mainly it's the the main event business across the US, which is entertainment venues, bowling, dining family entertainment, uh, but also theme parks in Australia. So what, what's the thesis there? Why do you like that one at the moment? Yes, yeah, so we are a uh, substantial shareholder in Art and Leisure. Uh, I think the key thing here is the, the recovery in the US is actually going really well, um, you know, on the back of the government support and much more advanced COVID restriction relaxations. Now, you know, I've had um, friends help me out, you know, walk the centres in the US, particularly in Texas. And, you know, they have long lines and the whole center is pumping and everyone, uh, no one was wearing masks. So I think life uh, in a lot of the states in the U.S. is pretty much back to normal. Now, 
the management um, pre-COVID actually started to start to turn around the business by restructuring um, a lot of the centers and improving the offering. So our view is that uh, at the current rate, and you've already seen the numbers sort of come through over the last few months, um, the, the revenue momentum is very strong. And this is, as you know, has a high operating leverage and a lot of that additional revenue is falling uh, to the bottom line. Um, so we think the uh, the autumn business, if you add, again, the theme park, which, which is Dreamworld and Skypoint, we think the, the business is significantly undervalued. And as we come out of COVID, um, you know, the intrinsic value will be realized um, by the market. Okay, so that's the tourism and leisure um, sector. Very interesting. I think it's worthwhile listening, uh, worthwhile uh, noting for our listeners that uh, corporate travel and Webjet are covered by Old Minute. And, and I think our, our analyst, our tourism and, and leisure analyst, John O'Shea, shares your positive view on those two stocks. Um, let's jump to something a bit different. So mining services, guys, what are your thoughts here? I guess famously a, a cyclical industry in Australia and you know, capital expenditure normally follows commodity price rises and then mining services follows that capital in terms of the construction and then the maintenance work. So uh, where are we in the cycle and in general, why do you like mining services at the moment? Yeah, it's a, Nick, it's a question we ask ourselves every day. Why do we like the mining services sector? Um, I think this time last year, I had the great idea of selling min resources at um, $30 because we had doubled our, um, I think we doubled from what, what it was when we bought it. I think it's $62 today. And I think uh, the reason why we sold it was to buy more mining services because of where commodity prices were. Now that trade didn't work through FY21 and largely because, um, you know, in terms of the, the border restrictions we saw, particularly with Western Australia, it really did impact the mining services companies that source a lot of their labour from other states. So, in fact, it has created a shortage of labour in Western Australia. Now, despite that, so despite all the companies you know, really underperforming last year, we do think this is this is in the price. You know, certainly valuations in the mining services sector are probably the lowest that we've seen in the last 10 years. And certainly um, where commodity prices are, you know, gold, iron ore, now the lithium and, and battery metals, like, I mean, we're at records here and even coal prices are at very high. So this is a very strong, um, very positive environment for mining services. So, you know, we've done well out of the exploration players. Um, that's ALS, DDH1 and also ALS Limited. We do think given where the valuations are, a lot of the, the construction and the um, contract mining companies uh, now do look quite interesting. So you've nominated Monodelphus and Seven Group Holdings, and Seven Group's really interesting at the moment. But Monodelphus, so it's described, often described as the best mining services company in Australia, or certainly listed on the ASX. So, so why is that? Yeah, I think Monodelphus is a very, very strong management team. They've been around for a very long time uh, together. There's been low turnover, and they've basically been the dominant structural, mechanical, electrical contractor in, in for all the iron ore majors, and also the oil and gas. Uh, players for some time. And I think, you know, having followed the stock for a long time, it's been fascinating to see their maintenance division, which has basically gone from nothing and now does over, you know, a billion dollars of revenue. So, you know, the business itself hasn't had many, has hardly had any problem projects. I think the closest scare they had last year was, you know, a dispute that they had with Rio Tinto, which has, you know, been resolved uh, with, with without any damage. So, Look, we 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 do think it's a, it's a great business. It's always had at high levels of of net cash, no debt. So you know, it has always been the one of the businesses that's commanded a high valuation. 
uh, than the rest of the sector. And as you mentioned, it does work for all of the big guys, you know, big iron ore exposure, you know, sort of quarter of the business across other minerals, and then there's some oil and gas exposure um, as well. So so that's Monodelphus. So seven group holdings, which I guess you'd call these days as sort of a diversified conglomerate in some ways. It's the business controlled by the Stokes family. It owns uh, West Track, the Caterpillar um, dealership business. It owns Coates Hire, Equipment Hire. It owns a, a 40% stake in Seven West Media, of course, Channel 7. And it's sort of undertaking a, a partial hostile takeover of, of Boral at the moment, the building uh, materials business that owns about 60% of that. So there's a lot going on with this company. So you know, why do you guys uh, like it? And what of those different things that it does, which, which areas do you like the most? Yeah, so we, we've owned Seven Group for the last five years, and we, we view Seven Group as a, as a mini West Farmers, effectively. We think it's got one of the best management teams uh, in the market, and they're very, very good at buying assets, as we've seen with Borrell and also Coates Hire, and we've also seen them sell assets such as West Track China, which they sold at a great valuation. So, yeah, our starting point for, for Seven Group's always been West Track and Coates, and in particular West Track, uh, which is obviously the, the Caterpillar dealership uh, in Western Australia and New South Wales. So that's been a big beneficiary over the last few years as, as miners have been replacing gear. And, but what we're also seeing at the moment is that we're seeing a, a, a basically equipment uh, being repurchased given it's at the end of their, at, at the end of their lives. So we've got it seeing a replacement cycle across a number of mines. So this should be very strong for West Track earnings over the next couple of years and be very good for margins. So the company's guided to high single-digit EBIT growth. We think it could be low double digits going into the um, August result. Now, on Coates Hire, the business has done a very good job at taking out costs. We think the, the changes in margins, which is, uh, I think, closer to 22% back at the first half result, can be maintained. We're seeing a very strong outlook for infrastructure going forward. So, it's, you know, Coates is a very direct, directly exposed there. So, very positive on both those, um, those companies. Now, moving on to Borrell. Now, I don't think that the seven group share price reflects how well management have bought Borrell. And they were buying, you know, back in March, April last year, below $2 a share. And now the share price is well over $7. And them being on the register has instigated change. Um, we've seen a buyback. We've seen asset sales in the US, the Windows business, the building products business, and possibly the uh, fly ash business into the future. So now with seven owning over 60% of the company, Borrow will be consolidated within the seven group accounts. Uh, we think this will lead to quite substantial earnings upgrades that we'll see at the August result. But most importantly, uh, I think there is a, a view out there in the market that because they've bought so much of Borrow, uh, seven needs to raise equity again. We definitely don't think they need to. And this is largely because the Borrow balance sheet is so strong with high levels of cash that when we consolidate Borrow's balance sheet within seven group, um, the debt metrics are going to look fine. So, Seven Group's our largest position going into reporting season, and we're very positive of the company over the medium term. Very good. And and just generally to sum up mining services, we mentioned before that it's a, a sort of cyclical sector. When you look at the outlook across uh, this sector now, you know how much confidence do you have and what's the sort of duration of, of, of that confidence, if you like, from where we are today? Yeah, I think uh, certainly on, on the expiration and maintenance side, I think it's very, very, very strong where you look at gold, you look at iron ore in particular. Um, so any of those companies at the moment, even where, where commodity prices are, if we think about expiration, 
Um, you know, res reserves are depleting, so companies need to explore to keep expanding uh, longer term. Commodity prices are very high, so it's very supportive of exploration. And then you look at sort of operations and maintenance, companies just need to keep maintaining their gear because if they have breakdowns or whatever, they can't cash in on these record levels of commodity prices. So we think those, those two broad categories should do quite well. On the construction side, it's a little bit different. You do need to pick your companies that are exposed to, you know, whether it be oil and gas, gold, iron ore, because that is highly cyclical. A lot of the iron ore construction projects are starting to wind down. Um, so that's why a number of the companies, so such as in NRW, we don't have an exposure to at this point in time because we do think the iron ore construction work is, is sort of coming to an end. So they need to find growth elsewhere. But then on the other side, so while we like Monodelphus, is we've seen a big pause in oil and gas construction work and also maintenance work. And we do see a, a quite a strong pipeline over the next two or three years, which they'll they'll benefit from. So, so yeah, I guess to answer your question, I think very positive on exploration and operations or maintenance going forward over the next two to three years. I think there's strong visibility there. Construction, there's good visibility, but you just need to pick your commodity and which 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 services companies exposed to that commodity. So let's move on to the next sector, retail. So I think, Oscar, you mentioned at the top that, um, you know, retail has been a big COVID beneficiary over the last 12 months and that you're generally cautious in this area. So let's flesh that out a little bit more, Tobias. What what areas do you like and, and what do you feel about the uh, the retail sector at the moment in Australia? So in the short term, you know, we are cautious the uh, retail sector domestically given the uncertainties caused by, you know, the COVID outbreaks and the lockdowns, which makes it very challenging to run retail businesses. Um, at the same time, you know, depending on the product that you sell, you know, there are also inventory availability issues and supply cost pressures. And if you, if you remember this time last year, going into Christmas, it was quite a buoyant environment uh, for retail spending. So the same store sales growth uh, will start to get harder to comp, you know, which is why we are avoiding domestic retailers that's relying purely on same-store sales trading and model new stores for growth. But having said all of that, you know, we do like retailers with strong international growth. You know, remember that many of the overseas countries uh, that's coming out of COVID are now going through what Australia went through uh, this time last year uh, from a recovery path perspective. So companies like City Chic and La Visa, you know, we like uh, in the retail space, given both of them have an international growth profile that, you know, we believe is it's here to stay uh, in the medium term. Okay, so let's delve into that a little bit more. Lavissa, fast fashion, jewellery and accessories retailer in Australia, the UK, uh, Europe and the US. So how's it gone through COVID and, um, and, and what areas of the business do you expect to uh, do well over the next six to 12 months with the, the international reopening? Yeah, so unsurprisingly, Lavissa being a, a brick and mortar store, you know, was uh, significantly impacted during COVID. So going back to my point earlier, um, because they have an international footprint, you know, our view is that as we come out of COVID, the investment piece is actually quite simple. As we come out of COVID with the stores all being up, you know, Levisa's best place and actually benefiting from um, this increase in, in the revenue. Um, at the same time, you know, a lot of retailers during COVID has right-sized their cost base. You know, they've reduced their costs uh, become more nimble to prepare for, I guess, uh, an uncertain environment. So our view is that coming out of COVID, these high-quality retailers will also have much higher operating leverage. So the revenue, there's a more of the revenue dollar will flow through to the bond line. 
so that's our um, view on LaVisa. And LaVisa going into the pandemic, you know, had an aggressive uh, store rollout profile around various locations of the world. So, you know, presumably that's been interrupted, but are there any impediments now for that to be um, reinitiated post, uh, post-COVID, I guess? Yeah, so, so one of the beautiful things with the uh, LaVisa, LaVisa model is the LaVisa store footprint is very small, right? So there are a lot of opportunities to enter into, you know, different shopping centres with such a small sort of footprint from memory, it's around 70 to 100 square meters footprint, and you can, you know, um, put in all the jewelry's uh, windows and store. So, in a lot of these cases, you don't need to sign very long lease terms, and if the store doesn't work, you can move on to another one. You can close this one down. So that's one of the key advantages advantages for someone like Levisa versus uh, many other retailers that need a massive amount of store footprint and you know a, a long lead time to getting you know, the, um, the return on capital, the payback period. So, you know, while there could be challenges getting access to stores, I think the management's very well positioned to execute on, on actually rolling out these stores. And then City Chic, CCX, it, the plus-size women's fashion retailer. So a really interesting business model. It's, it's bricks and mortar and an online presence in Australia, but online only in the UK and the US following... Uh, some acquisitions. So, what what's the uh, positive thesis on on City Chic? Yeah, so very similar to Levisa um, in the US and UK. Obviously, we believe the recovery there is going to continue to support the top line for City Chic. But the extra extra opportunity with City Chic right now is the potential for M and A. Now they've done a couple of acquisitions in the past that they've executed on and have uh, integrated very successfully. Now we think inorganic growth will continue to be a pillar of their growth in the future. And, you know, they are the leaders in their space um, and they can integrate a lot, a lot of these businesses very efficiently. So our view is they get the, the recovery tailwind plus an, interna- um, an inorganic angle uh, from an M&A perspective. And so the online-only presence in the UK and the US, is, is that sustainable? Does a business like this need uh, a physical presence ultimately or not necessarily, in your view, in those markets? You know, we believe it's sustainable. We believe the online trend uh, is here to stay. And, and COVID has only brought forward the adoption curve. You know, while some people will go back to, um, you know, physical, to the physical stores, you know, over the longer term, the online penetration rate should still be going I'm um, going up. So online only in the UK and the US. And um, Tobias, you've nominated Temple and Webster in Australia as an online retailing and e-commerce business that you wanted to talk through. So you've described uh, Temple and Webster as the highest quality e-commerce business listed on the ASX. So just explain why that is in your view. Yeah, sure. So, you know, our view on the e-commerce space continues to be that you want to invest in companies that had strong growth going into COVID, you know, which means the original strategy and the execution was down. And we believe these companies are the best uh, placed companies to grow in a post-COVID environment. Now, you know, the market is is worried about the ability for many of these businesses to to comp the you know the triple digit type growth rates they they all experienced last year. The other side of the coin is that if they do comp those growth numbers, then the stock price will re-raise significantly as it removes any short-term hesitance to own the stock and focus everyone's attention on the longer-term opportunity. So Templin Webster, pre-COVID, was growing at a growth rate of over 50%. 
Um, they then had the tailwind of COVID, you know, obviously benefiting their top line growth rates. But even now in a post-COVID environment, we think their growth rate is still very healthy and their ability to comp, um, you know, those historical growth rate is very strong. Um, the difference between Templar Webster and many other e-commerce players is, is that it is an e-commerce platform. It has a, a negative working capital, which means a lot of the capital for growth is held with the suppliers. This means the Templar Webster doesn't need additional capital for growth, um, which is why they've been so successful for so many years. So as a result, you know, we think they can continue to dominate the category that they're in, which is homeware and furnitures. And, um, you know, over time, just take a larger market share um, out of the overall um, pie. Yeah, so so furniture and homewares, I, I guess retailer it's described as, but you're describing it as more of a, a marketplace or a platform. And um, to your point, they don't take they don't take inventory risk, and that's all handled at the supplier. Um, so that reduces the risk of the business, and does it enable the business to grow at a higher rate as well? Yes, uh, I definitely believe in that. I think what the management has proven um, is they've been able to grow very successfully. Uh, if you think about the pre-COVID environment, the, the property market was relatively benign um, and they were able to grow in, I guess, during a period where it was sort of weak property prices, but then during COVID, you know, I think the blueprint is actually just using the Wayfair model in the US. Now, this has been done before in many other countries. So this is not new on the global stage. It, it all comes down to execution. The strategy is correct. You know, the opportunity is there. Um, and it just really comes down to execution. And, you know, what they've proven over the many years is they, they've been able to execute and to be able to really grow their market share, even with so many other competitors in the space. And, you know, now they're by far the largest. And if you look at, you know, global comps like Amazon, the larger you get, the more scale benefits you get, the, the more supplier support you get. And the, the sort of the snowball just sort of keeps rolling and, and success feeds on itself. So our, our view is that they've reached us scale where they can continue to leverage that advantage um, to grow ahead of the market over the next few years. Okay, very interesting. Thank you. So uh, there we go. The smaller mid-cap reporting season preview uh, with Wilson Asset Management, generally positive uh, heading into uh, the August period. Key sectors that they've selected, travel and entertainment on US and reopening uh, trends, particularly corporate travel, webjet and ardent leisure. Mining services um, and particularly benefits through the exploration and maintenance cycles. Key picks there being Monodelphus and then seven group holdings. Retail, cautious domestically, uh, but like an international growth angle through Levisa, City Chic, and then domestically Temple and Webster for its e commerce capability, as you heard there. Uh, from Tobias. So lots of interesting themes and stocks there. That's about it for this episode of the podcast. Now, the easiest way to get more information on Wilson Asset Management and their range of listed investment companies is speak to your financial advisor or go to their website, wilsonassetmanagement.com.au. Oscar, there's some upcoming communication from you guys to your shareholders. Yeah, so I mean, look, we've we've announced over the last couple of weeks the WAM leaders and the WAM global results. There will be an announcement in the coming weeks around WAM capital, WAM research, WAM active, and also WAM market cap. There will be an announcement around a, a conference call as well, just to discuss sort of what we're seeing in reporting season. Um, you know what what occurred in the last financial year and how we, we're viewing things going forward. Um, so keep an eye out in your emails or the ASX announcements, and, and that'll come shortly.
Okay. And also consult, consult your Ord Minute listed investment company research through your advisor as well. That's got all the latest information on the WAM listed investment companies and that overview of the Lick Universe comes out monthly. So make sure you consult that research as well. And also, and lastly, go to your advisor for research on some of the stocks that you've heard about today. I think we've got coverage on just about all of the stocks that have been mentioned. Finally, thanks to our special guests in this lockdown edition of the podcast, Oscar Oberg and Tobias Yao. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Virgil. Appreciate it, Thank you for having us. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to the Ord Minute Podcast. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessment about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned.